Well, after all that excitement, we still have time for a sermon. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for uh, just uh, your, your encouragement, your prayers uh, for our, our, our families that are raising up children. And many of us, uh, many, it's just a booming, uh, the nursery is just booming. And so God is just uh, really uh, growing this church through, <laughs> through our multiplication as well. So it's just kind of neat to see that. Uh, just thank God for these kids and thank God for parents. Many of you, thank God for all of you who are workers in the children's ministry and nursery ministry as well. Uh, it just really, truly takes a, a village to, to raise up a child in the ways of God. All right. We continue our worship service now by looking to the book of Isaiah, if you will. Take, with, take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 32 to 33. This morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about politics, you know, so if you don't like politics, you can probably, you know, find the door. No, um, now just know that the Bible has much to say about politics. The Bible has much to say about politics. It has, it uh, tells us much about government, the purposes of government, it talks about the, the leader, kind of leaders that ought to be in government, it talks about uh, the laws uh, that uh, principles that, that guide the laws of of God's of the governments of the land. But many of you know that this Tuesday, November eighth, two thousand sixteen, our nation is going to be selecting a new president. And if a lot of times, if you kind of just have been following the news and you kind of just reading the news, you kind of realize that um, well, the choices are basically between a, a career politician and a uh, a businessman entertainer, okay, uh, and and I've uh, I don't I don't have anything particularly against either of the candidates. Uh, I know some of you are pretty you know maybe pretty gung ho for one or the other. Uh, don't come up and try to tell me who you're going to vote for, or why I should vote for your candidate, okay? Because um, I just you know I, I don't want to hear it. But <laughs> but if am I, as as a pastor as a Christian, as you just evaluate you. You kind of look at politicians, you look at candidates, you want to look for people who have similar values as we as Christians, similar things that we find important, that we find are critical, we would like to see established according to God's word in the laws of the land. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, everybody has values that they want their government to reflect, uh, whether it's from religious values, whether it's just they grabbed it out of the sky, whether they read it in some book of man. Uh, everybody wants to input into our society, and we as Christians have also the similar, uh, our similar right to input uh, our desires as well. But when you look at our candidates this year, I would have to say, at least from my evaluation, that neither candidate is, uh, as far as I could tell, is a born-again Christian. Uh, neither of them, they don't seem to... You know, as far as their speeches, I can't tell that they, they know the Bible or that that's uh, something that guides them. Uh, I don't know. I don't really have the sense that they are committed to the same values that many evangelical Christians uh, hold dear. But what makes matters worse, I think, if you just kind of follow the news, you follow the rhetoric, that's uh, the, kind of the, the back and forth between the parties and candidates. It's, it really seems, it's from a, at least for a Christian, doesn't it seem like we're, we're forced to choose between the Antichrist and the false prophet? You know, it's like, it's like if you vote for that candidate, you are voting for the devil. You know, that's kind of essentially what it comes across, no matter which party you belong to, right? I mean, just, just listen to the news. This sounds, uh, sounds bad. No. Yet, nevertheless, one of these candidates, one, at least of these two major candidates, is going to be leading our nation in the near future for the next four years. I hope that as a Christian, you have been praying. Uh, you, hopefully you're registered uh, to vote, but at least you're praying about who you would like to see lead this country. Who do you want to see lead this country? 
Now, the scenario that we find in America in today is a scenario that uh, reminds me of what took place in Isaiah's day. Uh, Judah, in a sense, had uh, a potential two, uh, two, lead, two governments, two uh, types of leadership that they, that they would be under in the near future. Uh, they, really, uh, they were first under a, a government of corrupt leaders, and their existing government were corrupt. Their, their political leaders, their spiritual leaders were all essentially uh, caught up in immorality, injustice, idolatry, and they were not fulfilling their job as government leaders or religious leaders. They were, um, at the same time, though, the country was under the threat, a very real threat, of a potential government overthrow. That is, the kingdom of Assyria was threatening to... They were going throughout the whole land of the, Med, the, the Middle East, and they were just conquering nations left and right, rebellious nations, and replacing their leadership. And <clears throat> this Assyrian empire was potentially would be leading over the land of the people of Israel in the near future. But, of course, the problem with Assyria was that they were an unbelieving, idolatrous, and a wicked empire as well. Now, the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah were stuck between the choice. Well, really, they didn't have a choice. They're stuck between corrupt national leaders and wicked foreign leaders. There seemed to be little hope. There was no recourse for them. They, they couldn't vote anybody out. So that's why we should vote, by the way. Um, it's great, our vote comes at great cost, so FYI. Where would these, and they couldn't overthrow, if, if Assyria was ruling over the land, they couldn't overthrow Assyria. They would be helpless. They would, they would, be, they would have been conquered by Assyria. But that's where God steps in, in Isaiah 32 and 33. God steps in with an encouragement to God's people under the threat of unrighteous and treacherous rulers by reminding them of a third option, a third leader, a third candidate. To the nation of Judah, God promises a future king, a king who will reign righteously and save his people. This morning, as we kind of just introduced this message, as we ponder who will lead this country in the future, our text serves to remind us that God has a far better third option. Who do you want to lead this country? God offers us the Messianic King, a righteous future leader of the earth that will reign. And to tell you the truth, as we cast our votes, as we, as we look to uh, maybe some of us get involved in politics, and I, I think we should, as, as citizens, be involved to some extent, we should be working towards serving this future king who will reign righteously over the earth. And so as an outline for us today, uh, just, uh, we're going to look through this two, these two chapters. We're going to see under the threat of unrighteous and treacherous rulers in Isaiah's day, they receive, or we can receive, we find two encouragements to hope in the future reign of the righteous king. That we can look to a future king that's going to rule over us. And rule, just as Israel looked to this future king to rule over them in the, in the midst of a world of treacherous and unrighteous rulers. So hopefully, so this may, this may encourage it to you. For instance, after November, uh, you find that your candidate didn't win. Uh, you don't need to move to Canada, okay? That's all right. That's all right. There's going to be a future righteous ruler that's going to reign. And that will bring, that is going to, is going to be enough to give us hope and strength the days ahead.
All right, so let's take a look at the number one, the first encouragement to hope. We find it under the fact that of the promise of the righteous reign of the king, that God makes a promise to us of this coming messianic king who would reign in righteousness. Um, what's wonderful about the hope that we have as Christians is that it's always grounded in, in the promises of God. So that because it's grounded in the promise of God, Christian hope, biblical hope, is something that's certain. It's something that you can bank on, you can count on. Uh, it's not something, it's, it's not a percentage, it's not a, uh, it's not a likelihood of happening. It is a 100% guarantee that it will happen. And you can count on this taking place. You know, you know, even, you know, even though we may think that uh, one or the two candidates may become president in the, after November, that is less likely than the coming of the king. Less likely than the coming of the king. Anyways, let's take a look then at the promise of this righteous reign. This promise first begins with a description of the influence of his reign. Why do we want this? Why do we want to look forward to this righteous king that's going to come? Because of his influence upon the world, as we see in verses 1 to 8. Behold, verse 1, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. And this is what Israel and Judah were looking for. They were looking for a king a ruler, a leader who would reign with righteousness, with, with, uh, with justice, not with unrighteousness, not with injustice, as they knew of their current leaders. Now, Isaiah had already mentioned this kingly ruler several times in his vision. In Isaiah 9.6, he is the child who will be born, the son who would be given, upon whose shoulders would rest the government of God. His, is the na- his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4 to 5, he is the shoot from the stem of Jesse. That is, he is the descendant of David, the, de- part as who, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, who would come and judge with righteousness and faithfulness. And later on, in fact, in the next chapter, Isaiah 33, 22, we're actually going to learn that not only is he the descendant of David, not only is he this son or child who would be given to us, but we learn that this king is none other than the Lord himself. The Lord is our king. Now, you can imagine the confusion that the Israelites felt about this. How can our coming king be both a child, a son given to us, a child, a son of David, descendant of David from, stem, from the stem of Jesse, and yet how can he also be the Lord? And you can imagine that many Israelites just scratched their head at that because they had no idea no conception. And we, you, you and I, if we lived in those days, we would have had no idea of the God-man, Jesus Christ. But you know, as you and I know on this side of the cross, that the fulfillment of this king is found in Jesus Christ, who was 100% God, the Son of God, who dwelt in, in, in heaven with God the Father from all eternity past. He came, he took, in, in the incarnation, took on the form of man, born of the Virgin Mary, and lived a life as perfect man. It was he who came and walked on this earth. And he is this righteous king. And we know that the scriptures tell us that he will come again in his millennial kingdom. And when he'll establish his rule upon the earth. And when he does, he will have a wide influence upon the world. You see, it's not just he who's going to be reigning. In verse 1, it tells us that he will reign, but also princes will rule justly. That is, he's going to establish a government over this world 
where there's going to be other leaders of other areas and locations, these princes that will rule as well on his behalf. And this will be his government. It will be a government of righteousness and justice. And we see as a result of this, in contrast to the government of the corrupt government of in Isaiah's days, we see that there are going to be, this government will be different in three different ways. First of all, in verse 2, we see that there's going to be no more political corruption. There will be an end to it. Verse 2, each will be, each, that is each prince, not just the king, but each of those princes, the part, those different rulers in his government, will be like a refuge from the wind, a shelter from the storm, the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. In contrast to the wicked leaders who abused and neglected the people, every leader in our king's reign will serve to protect. There'll be, these are terms, refuge, shelter, streams, shade. These are used of God, right? These are, God is our refuge. God is our rock. God is our stream. God is our refuge. But when, in the Lord, when the Lord God, when Jesus Christ comes again, his ruler, his princes will also rule like him in the same manner as he does. You and I know that our world today, there is, though we have, uh, we have governments and we have one of the better forms of government in our land, in, our, in the nation. But even in our nation, uh, there is unrighteousness. There is injustice in various places of government. But in the king, in our righteous king's reign, it will be brought to a complete end. There will be no more political corruption. Secondly, in his reign, there will be no more spiritual suppression. Verses 3 to 4. In our day and age, especially in our political realm, it seems it is taboo to speak about Jesus Christ. It is taboo to bring into any kind of mixed religion, even. In the name of separation of church and state, we have completely cast off any moral groundings that our Christian faith and any faiths bring into the political realm. So there's a spiritual suppression that takes place even in our government today. And that's going to come to an end in Jesus' government. Verse 3 and 4. Then the eyes of those who will see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. The nation in that day, and Isaiah is predicting for Judah, that in that day the nation will no longer reject the truths of God. They will no longer say that it's taboo. No, you can't talk about that. Give us things that, tell us, give, give us, as we saw last week, give us illusions. Give us things that will tickle, us, tickle our ears, that we want to hear pleasant things. But no, the, in those days, the rulers of that day will speak in tr- the truth into the public square. And God's truth, and the print, our, or the, our ruler, our king's truth, will influence every aspect of society. And it will be for the good of all. Thirdly, because of the righteous reign of the king, there will be an end to moral confusion. End to moral confusion. Verse 5 to 8. No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. For a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines towards wickedness. To practice ungodliness, to speak error against the Lord. To keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans, he stands. And as many of us understand, kind of, not just in our, in our nation, but in nations around the world, many political offices are filled with fools and rogues. 
What are fools and rogues? Well, God describes it in verse 6 and 7. They're fools speak nonsense. They're, they're inclined towards wickedness. Rogues are those who use wickedness to scheme, to destroy those who are helpless, those who are needy. And these are the fools. These are rogues. They use the political office for their own gain, not for the service of the people. They're not servants. They're lords. They've forgotten. But nevertheless, these fools, these rogues who serve political office, what? In our world today, it's all turned upside down because they're called heroes. They're called noble. They're called generous. That is, they're, they're called honorable when, according to God's word, they are anything but. Sometimes I wanna, I, when I think of an example of this, I can't help but think about those who advocate for the free and unhindered access to abortion. Now, I know that's a political subject and it's a hot topic at seven times, but in the Bible, the abortion, the life of a child is just as important of the life of any living person, living adult or child walking on earth. And to end and terminate those abortion is still murder. But yet those who advocate for such uh, the free access to abortion are called champions. They're looked up to. There's heroes because they're, why? They're standing up for women's rights. There is moral confusion in our land. That's just one example. There's other issues as well that we could pick and choose that our world has completely upside down. And those who champion them are called heroes, great leaders, when they're anything but. But this moral confusion will come to an end in the reign of the righteous king. And that day, every leader, every prince will be a noble. You know, this is to be a term. Noble, you know, nowadays this means, oh, it must be a, a prince or something like that. But in, other, in, in these days... A prince or someone who's a royalty would act nobly, would act with, with, with generosity, with, with great kindness, with, with, uh, with, a great, with, a greatness, with a greatness to help others. They saw their responsibility with, of their, their privilege and positions of, of, of political uh, leadership as a responsibility to take care, to look out for the people that God had entrusted to them. That was the definition of noble. In, these, in the reign of the king, every ruler will be noble. We see then the influence of the king, the influence of his righteous reign. How will this righteous reign come about? What's, what is, when is this going to happen? Well, we may not have a specific date, but in verses 9 to 20, we see the path to his righteous reign. We see what must take place before his righteous reign comes. Even as we're looking at this text, and, I would, uh, and as we've looked through much of Isaiah, remember there's, always a, a near, there's often a near and far reference. And so though there is a near reference, uh, some of these events, we can talk about God's judgment, for instance, that's going to be fulfilled in the nation of Syria, but also there's always an ultimate far fulfillment in all of this. In the days when Christ will come again and that judgment that he will bring uh, is, is all kind of conveyed even in, in much of this text. But anyways, we learn first of all that the path to his righteous reign, when he will come, is first, before that will happen, it will happen through God's judgment. That before there can be God's righteousness and justice, there will be God's judgment. Now, this message in 9 to 14 is conveyed in a, in a unique way. It's conveyed as a warning, a warning to the women of Judah to not be complacent about the coming judgment. Read in verse 9, 14 with me. Rise up, 
O you women who are at ease, and hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. Listen, you're going to hear that word complacent several times. Within a year and a few days, you will be troubled, O complacent daughters, for the vintage is ended and the fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, and put sackcloth on your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come. Yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken. Hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. We see at the end, particularly verse 14, this clear prophecy that judgment is coming where the palace of the city, the the city of Jerusalem, the hills, the the towers, uh, they all will become desolated and destroyed. It will be a place where donkeys and wild donkeys will pasture, which is going to run around. But the women of Judah here, they're they're addressed here because of their complacency. God had already told them, the people of Judah about, their, um, about the judgment. And I, you know, I'm not sure, you know, we don't know why God's speaking directly to the women. Uh, perhaps because women are more sensitive, uh, are, are sensitive. And would, you know, when I think about, you know, at least in my family, uh, generally my wife is more gifted, more sensitive to the, the threats and dangers, the things that could, that could affect our family, where I'm like, oh, man, yeah, happy go there. Yeah, it's all good, you know. So maybe that's the case, but just, it just kind of came to me. Uh, if you, you know, but anyways, God's addressing the women. And he wanted them, and here it's the women who are complacent. Even though God's saying, I'm going to judge you, it's the women who are sitting back. They're like, oh, everything's going okay. Nothing to worry about. There's no one warning, no one doing anything about the coming judgment. But God has already predict, predicted the coming judgment. And God wants them to pay attention to the judgment that's coming. He wants them to respond to the judgment that's coming with fear, with mourning, with trembling. He wants them to, 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 be, to, be a, to respond to the promise of judgment. God tells us about that judgment is coming so that we would just not be complacent. Oh, that's nice. God tells us about the judgment that's coming so that we would escape judgment. And if you have... And a, and the greatest judgment of all is the judgment of God's wrath against our sin and eternal judgment in hell. And God tells us that the salvation through Jesus. Don't be complacent, just kind of, oh, that's nice. Believe in Jesus now. But that's what God is essentially telling the women of Jerusalem to t- repent and to put their trust in God. We know that God allows discipline to prepare his people, to cause them who are in, when God disciplines us, it causes us to turn away from sin and turn to him. And that's what he's doing for Jerusalem. He's telling, he's warning uh, these ladies to turn away, to turn back to God. So not only is discipline necessary, that God's, before God will come to send his son to, to reign on the earth, there's going to be a judgment that comes. Before there's deliverance, there's always there's a judgment that there's a discipline of God's people. But also, secondly, we see that the righteous reign is going to be through the, the pouring out of God's spirit. In verse 15 20. Not only is there judgment that must come, but there's going to be a pouring out of God's spirit. All this judgment, that discipline that God has in state in store for his people is going to take place 
verse 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, righteousness will abide in the fertile field, and the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. Then my people will live in peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places and it will hail when the forest comes down and the city will utterly be utterly laid low. How blessed will you be, you who sow beside all waters, who let out freely the ox and donkey. There's much said here, much just, uh, but the rain, we learn here that the reign of the Messiah, when the Messiah comes to reign, it will be known for an outpouring of the Spirit upon Israel. It is not only do you see it here in verse 15, but we see it elsewhere in Scripture. We see Joel prophesies of this in Joel chapter 2, 28 to 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Ezekiel prophesies of it in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27. And then we see it in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. You see, God promises to the nation Israel, to the, peop- to the, to the house of David, the, dwelling, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that he's going to pour out for them his spirit, a spirit of grace. And the result is when he pours out the spirit, essentially what's going to happen is that they're going to repent. They're going to turn, and they're going to finally see for themselves. They're going to be born again, and they're going to see for themselves what they have done. They're going to look upon the one whom they had pierced. They're going to realize that we had pierced our king. They're going to mourn for him. They're going to have remorse, a godly sorrow that leads them to repentance. And God promises this to the nation Israel. In fact, in, in, Joel, in, in Joel, we see that it's not just uh, for the nation of Israel, but on that day, when that time comes, it's going to be poured out upon the whole world. Now, some of us may be wondering, well, didn't God fulfill this already at Pentecost? Right? Pentecost. Uh, the, didn't the Holy Spirit come out then? Well, didn't God pour out his spirit upon people so that people spoke in tongues, and then they started testifying, and then the, you know, the fire came, you know, kind of laid on their heads? And Isn't that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit? Partially, a partial fulfillment, if you will. Because at that point, for the, the na- whole nation of Israel did not experience the pouring out of the Spirit. The whole world, as we uh, did not experience the pouring out of the Spirit. And much less, though the Spirit has been poured out, this land is still known for injustice. We see verse 16 and 20 describing a land that's where justice, righteousness, peace, quietness, confidence, a peaceful place, all these things we do not find on earth yet. And so just further confirmation that the pouring out of the Spirit upon the nation of Israel is still yet to come. There is still a future for nation, the national Israel. But when the Spirit is poured out, and when, God's, when God pours out his discipline upon Israel, when it comes to an end, and at the pouring out of his Spirit, national Israel will turn from their sins. They will recognize what they've done. They'll turn in, they'll repent and turn in faith in God. And they're gonna, and they will then see their king reign. And this is a promise. This is a promise for them. And then because this is a promise for them, it was 
It is encouragement to them, no matter who reigns over them. You know, in a few, mo- in a few months, uh, we're going to have half of the country grumpy because their candidate, about half or so, I don't know, around there, because their candidate didn't win. And if you're in that half that, didn't, that your candidate didn't win, uh, you're going to be disappointed. And then, but if you're in the part of the other half that where your candidate did win, you're going to be happy for a little while. And then you'll be disappointed. Okay. Okay. The fact is, whoever gets elected in government, you're going to be disappointed to them. Because that's not what, who God wants us to look to. God wants us to look to his son, who is the messianic king. He wants us. And this is a promise for us. And this is, our, this is, and this is the one who we should look to for encouragement when we are disappointed in the rulers of our land. Because they will disappoint us. Because they're human beings. As all human beings do. This leads into our second encouragement for us, uh, to, uh, for us in, the, in, the, in a world of treacherous and unrighteous rulers, and that is, we see in chapter 33, the longing for the righteous reign of the king. That we see actually a prophecy here of Israel longing for the righteous reign of the king. Up till now, according to chapter 30, verse 15, the nation wasn't even willing to, for, to, to have uh, the king be over them. Uh, up to this time, they'd sought anything else but the king. Uh, when King Ahaz was given the offer to, look for a, to ask for a sign from God to trust in him, he didn't. He, he turned and trusted in Assyria. And so thus, God would then prophesy that Assyria would be used as a judgment of Judah. And then even when Assyria was knocking at the doors, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah didn't put his trust in, in God at first. But King Hezekiah turned to Egypt. Then he uh, later on we'll see he even tried to to buy off and to uh, to buy off with with gold and treasures the ruler of Assyria. Never until they are get completely desperate do they turn and look for the king. Do they look to God, the the messianic king? And so we see here in chapter 33 the beginnings of this prophecy of how Israel will one day long and pray for and look to the righteous reign of the king. And we see this in verse 1 to 9, this appeal for the king. It's a, it's a prayer that Israel is going to pray that, that's found in verses 2 to 6. And just give you a little outline here. It's kind of just a really neat thing. It's the prayer actually is found in verses 2 to 6 when they're going to actually pray, O Lord, that you'll see there. But sandwiched between this, uh, sandwich on the, this prayer is sandwiched with, first of all, in verse 1, a promise, a promise from God. And then it, in the end, it concludes with a, a description of the present state of Judah. And I like what kind of just devotionally this, this teaches us. It just teaches, it illustrates for us a truth that's in the scriptures. That, a, that the people, people do not pray to God for salvation, for help. People will not look to him to save them from their sins, to save them from danger, until, apart from, first of all, the promise of God. None of us are going to cry out to God to save us unless we know God says, for whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There's always the the promise of the gospel, the salvation that, that comes forth. There's always a promise of God that causes us to respond to that promise because he promises so we can ask of him. But then secondly, we never will pray to God for salvation apart from a recognition of our state, of how hopeless we are. And that's what verse 7-9 describes, the hopelessness of Judah. You and I will, never would have turned to God 
for save, salvation from sin unless we knew that we were hopeless in our sin. And some of you are sitting out there, and some of you, I know, are, are seeking after Jesus Christ. Are you not? You're wondering, is he for you? And you're asking, and it, real sincerely, I, I believe it. You're wondering, why do I need Jesus? I, I can intellectually grasp it. But it's more than intellectual grasping. You need a, we need God to do a work in your heart to show you how desperately you need, how desperately you need the sale of salvation that is found in Christ. Because apart from him, according to God's word, and he is trustworthy, now that he says, you and I are hopeless. You and I are lost. And the longer you live, I know that you will find this to be true, that we are hopeless. We're hopeless. The closer we draw to our dying days, we truly believe. You will come to understand. I'm on the other half now. I'm starting to see it. We truly are hopeless unless we have Jesus Christ. We're hopeless and we need, a, we need him. I pray that you, would, that you have found Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin. And so this, this appeal to the king begins with a, a promise of a woe in verse 1 there. Woe to you, O destroyer, and woe to you who are not destroyed. He was treacherous. It goes on there. This is really a description upon God's woe, God's pronouncement of judgment upon us, the national nation of Assyria. They're going to be destroyed. That's why, Judah, you can trust in God. And we see their prayer manifest then in response to this promise of destruction. It's manifest in verse 2 to 6. And Israel finally prays, O Lord, will finally pray, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning. Our salvation also in the time of distress. In chapter 30, verse 18, I'm not going to read the, the rest just for the sake of time. In 30, chapter 30, verse 18 and 19, you go back there, you see there that what God says there is that God longs to be gracious to his people. God wants to be gracious to his people. And, but the people don't want his grace. They, they're not willing at that time. But he says, when you cry to me, I will answer. Here we finally see in verse 2 here, the prediction, the prophecy of Israel are actually going to cry out to God and say, Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. And we know because God promised in 30, 18, 90, he is going to answer. He is simply waiting for people to repent and cry out to him. He will, they will recognize his power to save, that he has a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, and they will turn to him. And then verse 7 to 9, we see the description of their present state. With Sennacherib terrorizing the land. This is essentially dated about, can, we can date it to about one year before Jerusalem is besieged. Verse 7 uh, talks about, behold, their brave men cry in the streets. Their soldiers are crying. Is a description of Judah. The ambassadors, their, their political leaders, their, uh, their states, their states uh, folk are, uh, are weep bitterly because basically every, they're saying this is all the, they've tried to fight, they cannot do anything. They tried politics, it cannot accomplish anything. The highways are desolate, the traveler has seized, 
He, that is, Sennacherib, has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He has no regard for man. And historically, we're going to find that King Hezekiah, in desperation, takes all the treasure, money, treasuries out of the temple and sends it to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And Sennacherib takes the money, but he still comes and attacks Jerusalem. So he betrays the covenant he broke. So Jerusalem is basically desperate this time. And that's why they all turn to God in the desperation. That's sometimes... We are like that, too. We're so foolish. We're so hard-headed that we wait till God brings us to our complete desperation when we cry out to him. And that's what the God, God's people do. They cry out in desperation. They appeal to him for his graciousness to save them. And God answers. Verses 10 to 16, we see God answers in two things. First of all, we're going to see that he's promised to arise to judge the enemy. Verse 10 to 12, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will be exalted and I will be lifted up. You have conceived chaff. You will give birth to stubble. My breath will consume you like a fire. The peoples will be burned alive like cut thorns which are burned in the fire. So in response to the cry of his people, the Lord is going to arise. He's going to get up from his throne. We think of the Lord God as being seated on his throne in heaven. That's where he is. He's seated on his throne. But he's going to arise to take action in that day when his people cry out. He's going to arise and he's going to judge Assyria. He's going to judge, and in, when it comes to the days of Christ's second coming, he's going to judge every nation that is opposed to him. But he's also going to judge, arise to judge Zion. He's going to judge Jerusalem as well. You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Listen to what they say. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell in the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. All this is saved. Basically, Jerusalem is going to realize that they too are under the wrath of God because of their sin. And they're going to realize that God is a consuming fire. And that's a theme of God's wrath that is actually carried into the book of Hebrews. God's wrath is like a consuming fire. No one can stand within it. You cannot stand before a holy God and not be consumed by his holy fire. But there's one who can. You can't. There seems, there's an answer that seems to describe someone who could. Well, someone who walks righteously, speaks with sincerity. Well, immediately, most, almost every one of us have been are taken out of that equation. The fact is, this rest of the description describes that there's no one who meets this, meets this description. No man on earth can meet this description. There's only one who can, and that's the king. And it's only those of us who believe in him, who, have, who receive his righteousness in our spiritual account, so when God looks at us, he doesn't see us anymore because our sins were placed upon Jesus and Jesus' righteousness was given to us. So when God looks at us, he sees us in perfect righteousness. He sees us as if we've walked righteousness, as if we've spoken with sincerity, as if we've rejected unjust gain and so forth, as if we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And he forgives. And God is coming to judge. He'll judge the enemy. He's going to judge the people of God even, except that they, those clothed in the righteousness of the king. 
verses 17 and 24 conclude then uh, with the hope, with hope for the people of God. There's an assurance for them because of the righteous reign of the king. He says in verse 17 to 22, several things. Let's read. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech, which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue, which no one understands. Look upon Zion, a city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation, a tent which will not be folded. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. But there, the majestic one, the Lord, will be for us, a place of rivers and wide canals on which no boat with oars will go and on which no mighty ship will pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. We find in these verses several assurances from the king. And just real briefly, they have the people of God in that day will see him. They have the assurance that they will actually see the king. And this word to see him is that they will see him for who he is. They won't just like physically see him, though that is what they'll do. But they will see him for who he is. The people of Israel in the days of Jesus' first coming, they saw him with their eyes. But they did not see him for who he is. They rejected him. They will see, but in the, in the second coming of the Lord, they will see him in his beauty. They will behold him. And they will see their king. They will look to him in trust. Secondly, they will no longer see their enemies, according to verse 18 and 19, because the king that's coming is going to defeat them, is going to destroy them. They will disappear. Thirdly, assured, they receive, the people of God receive assurance that they will dwell with him in Jerusalem, according to verse 20 and 21. They will live in the city of Jerusalem. And this is specifically to the, to the nation of Israel. You and I may not be able to live in Jerusalem. Maybe we'll be living in America. Who knows? Uh, but the people of Israel will live in Jerusalem. They also will, will be their specific promised dwelling place. And then fourthly, most importantly, key verse of this passage, they will be saved. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. And he will save us. Here is the great reveal of who is their king. Who is this king that is promised to come, according to chapter 32, verse 1? He is the Lord. The Lord's the judge, the lawgiver, and the king. And what's more, he's not just king. You know, in our government today, uh, we think of our ruler as being our president. But there are many rulers, aren't we? We have three executive branches. We have three branches of our government. You know them. They are the judicial, the legislative, and the... Executive, all right. You yeah, good, have good people out there. You, you paid attention to U.S. history or U.S. government. Um, and those are three aspects of our government today. But in the day of the Lord, when he returns, he's going to fulfill every branch of government. He's going to be judge, lawgiver, and king. Judicial, legislative, and executive. He, that means... Basically, there's nothing that's going to oppose them. You know how our checks and balance, we have our three branches because they serve to check and balance one another. There will be no check and balance for Jesus Christ. There's no need because he's going to be perfectly righteous. He's going to, whatever he decides is going to be great. You know, if he says, this is how it's going to be, you know that's the best. That's going to be the right thing. We don't have to second guess. 
We don't have to say, oh, well, you know, you know, I think it's kind of like our, our Americans, it's our hobby to just criticize our politicians. And, and uh, you know, if you're, God calls you a politician, more power to you. That's a hard job, task, okay? Uh, and if God serves you serving our government, uh, I appreciate that. But the fact is, there ain't going to be no complaining about Jesus in the, in, in the millennial kingdom. He's going to be perfect, a perfect ruler, and he is going to save us. No, the king is no other than the Lord himself. We see here that the king is divine. This is another pro- a prophecy of the divine nature of the messianic, messianic king. And, that is, and that's the only reason why he's able to save us. That's the only reason he's able to save Israel. Because only God can save. Only God can forgive sins, right? No man can do it. Only God can. Only God can. If Jesus came, and it was, if, if, there were, if God made a man who was just perfect... But he was not God. His life could not die for the sins of mankind. He would not be able to die because only the divine, a divine God could pay an infinite price because a man can only pay a finite price for sin. He could pay for his own sin. Maybe the sins of one person. Only the divine Son of God could pay a price to save all of us. And then... Verse 23, 24, just kind of a uh, brief, uh, quick conclusion. We're reminded of two vital truths here. They're kind of, it's kind of an odd way to say it, but first of all, in verse 23, we see that Jerusalem, we're reminded that Jerusalem is helpless to save herself. Your tackle hangs slack. It cannot hold the base of its mass firmly, nor spread out the sail. Then the prey of an abundant spoil will be divided. The lame will take the plunder. This is basically a description of how, uh, you know, the, this, as a ship, basically, the ship is about to sink. It's, it's not going to sail. As a, it's like a, described as a prey. The nation describes prey basically with the, uh, the um, lions and, uh, basically surrounding it, ready to divide and devour it. It's described as a lame, uh, 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 something that's lame being taken plunder. Jerusalem is helpless to save herself. And that's what they, they are reminded by this. And we are reminded that we are helpless in our own. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need a king. But secondly, Jerusalem is reminded uh, in verse 24 that one day they'll be free from all sin. Verse 24, and no resident will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. See, the problem for Israel is not just uh, a bad government. The problem for Israel, the problem of Jerusalem, the problem of Judah was that they have a problem with sin. And when the righteous reign of the king comes, there will no longer be sickness, that's a consequence of sin, but they will also have their sins completely forgiven. And we sell this foreshadowed when Jesus came the first time, when he came and he healed sin, sin and sickness. Because sin and sickness often was, we learned in our, we learned our adult one class this morning, excellent lesson, we learned that is associated because there, without sin in this world, there is no sickness. Sickness exists only because of the fallen nature of man. But God will ultimately forgive us of our sins. That's the greater task. Not only will be the healing. There's not going to be sick people in that in that day. There's going to be there's going to be no more hospitals essentially. Okay, so those of you in the medical field, find another job. Okay, get, a, get another job because you're going to need some other job out there. Um, how many pastors? Well, I have a job out there. Oh, everybody look at it as well. The thing is, all our sins will be forgiven in that day. And hopefully we, as we th- think about this, we see why Israel would long for the righteous reign of the king. He came and will come to accomplish what he can only accomplish. 
the forgiveness of sins and our salvation. As Christians who live in a world of treacherous and unrighteous rulers, we, can, we need to be, we can long for him. We need to look for him because he has the most important thing to offer mankind. You know, whoever you're going to vote for in this election, don't tell me who you're going to vote for. Just, who are you, just you know, you mind, you're thinking, why are you going to vote for them? What are you looking for to him or her for? What is it that you want to see changed because you vote for him or her? You know, probably, hopefully it's based upon some policy, not just because, oh, I saw the guy on TV, or, well, she's a, she's a, she has a, she's a politician, you know, uh, she's, a, she's married to Bill, you know. Hopefully it's just not just because of personal things, but you're basing it upon policies that, that they stand for, and, and, um, and hopefully uh, make your best choice. But when you think about it, whatever you look to them for pales in comparison to why we should look to the righteous reign of our king. It pales in comparison to what we look to Jesus for. It pales in, and, and even though we, we, I, you know, we, well, we're going to cast our vote this, this fall, we're going we're gonna to vote, we're going to be involved, let us always remember that the best rule of this country is the one that we're not going to cast a vote for, but it's the one that's already promised to come. He's already been elected. He's already been chosen. He's just waiting for his inauguration. He's waiting. He's coming. He will come and he will reign from Jerusalem. He'll reign over the earth. And if this country is still on the earth at that day, he will reign over this country too. And so as those who live in this land, let's always remember, let's look to the one who's promised to come for our hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the king who is coming. We pray that... Uh, even as we look to our election, as we get all excited and, and maybe uh, also disappointed about uh, what happens as a result of our election, Lord, help us to remind, be mindful that you have a third-party candidate that will ultimately reign over this land, that, we need, that you would cause us to look to him for our salvation, that you would look to cause us to look to him for what we really, this world really needs, and that is forgiveness of sins but also we know that he will bring a land of justice, a land of righteousness, a land of peace, a land of rest. Lord, we look forward to that day. Until then, Lord, have mercy upon our land. Have mercy upon our leaders. Have mercy and compassion upon us. Lord, give, them much, give our leaders much wisdom. We pray for them, Lord, not only for their salvation, but we pray that you would enable them to lead wisely, enable them to lead in a way that there would be peace in our land so that the gospel that we preach, we continue to go forth. Lord, we thank you, Father, for this time and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Um, We'll see you next week.